Well, I can prove that my mind's not completely gone. I can remember some things. Uh, Kathy uh, was nine years old, nine years old, when probably she heard that song for the first time, but uh, especially uh, when this one particular fellow sang it. Uh, Richard, uh, what was his last name? Uh, Richard... uh, I told you it wasn't all gone, but uh, (laughs) Richard was born without any arms or legs. I was pastoring in a little town called Pleasant Hope, Missouri, and uh, I had Richard to come out and sing. Think about that, born without any arms or legs, uh, and yet he graduated from the University of Texas. Pretty amazing stuff for somebody without arms and legs. Drove his own vehicle. At that time was living there in Springfield, attending Baptist Bible College. And he came out and he played the guitar, he played the organ. No arms, no legs, just little stubs here. And uh, that was one of the songs that he sang. That'll do something to you whenever you're sitting there looking at someone without arms or legs singing, Jesus, use me. Makes you think. Open your Bibles this evening to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter number 4. The famous preacher R.G. Lee pastored Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee for many, many years. R.G. Lee was considered uh, maybe the greatest orator of all of the preachers here in America, and uh, certainly was one that uh, I remember the first time I listened to him, I drove all the way from Springfield to Oklahoma City just to hear R.G. Lee preach, and he just, you were spellbound. Uh, After R.G. Lee, Adrian Rogers... Uh, followed him as the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, and they built a new facility in Cordova, Tennessee, just a little ways outside of town. Huge, massive building. That building has seven gigantic pillars, columns, that support the entrance. And engraved on those seven columns are these words, One body... Next column, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Our text this evening shows where those words came from. Paul says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now remember, Paul has just made a plea for unity. But he's not speaking about unity at any price, nor is he talking about being unified in absolutely every area. We sing the little chorus, bind us together, and that's fine, that's wonderful. We need to be bound together in the cords of love. That's all true, but we need to understand that that 
the thing that binds us together has to do with the, the doctrines of God's Word. It's got to be more than just friendship and more than just fellowship. And so as Paul is writing to them and makes a plea for the church to be unified, notice that he moves right into these areas, these seven elements or seven doctrinal truths that constitute the factors by which a church is to be united. And uh, we can ignore a lot of our minor differences, right? Uh, you know, there's just some things that are just not worth fighting about, some issues that are just not all that important. And, uh, you know, there have been more church splits uh, that had to do with personality clashes and things like building programs and stuff like that. You know, the color of the walls and the color of the carpet, and and, and people get in an argument, and the next thing you know, you've got a you got a split. Well, I, listen, there's some things just not worth fighting about, folks. The unity of the church is more important than any of those other issues, but. Here we find seven doctrines that are set forth, and these are matters that we cannot afford to ignore. These are the non-negotiables, as it were. An old Baptist by the name of Nelson Collier, and I bet Brother Earl and Beverly knew Nelson. Old Nelson Collier used to say in this regards, he said, This is one instance where the sum of seven is one. Now, that's a good way to look at it. I'd never heard anybody else say that. The sum of seven is one. And that is to say that when a church is unified in these seven areas, it will have a spirit of unity in the church. Now, we live in a day where the truth has been abandoned for the sake of unity. I heard someone say just today, in fact, about another person. And the other person, they said, does not like anything that, not, this is not the exact words, but anything that identifies you with a certain denomination or anything like that. They don't want any labels put on their Christianity, in other words. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm proud of the word Baptist myself, and it's not something we took to ourselves. By the way, our enemies gave us that name. They called us Anna. That's a not anti Anna A N A Baptist. That means re baptizers. So they gave us the name. We wouldn't accept their so-called baptism. They said all oh, those rebaptizers over there, and uh, they gave us the name, and we ought to wear it proudly because it does identify what we do. But today, it seems like the only thing people care about is just let's all get along. You forget this, and I'll forget that, and we'll all just get along, and everything will be just fine. Christian unity is not about friendliness. It's not about fellowship. It has to do with the doctrines that we believe. In more than one instance, I've seen church signs that said, 
exactly this, and some others said something similar. It said, we don't preach no doctrine, only Christ. And they thought that was really cute. And that just shows how dumb they are. The word doctrine simply means teaching. And they're saying, we're not going to teach you anything. And to put something up there like that, we don't teach no doctrine or nothing, only Christ. Why, listen, Christ is a doctrine, so to speak. There is the doctrine of Christ. I mean, it's the teaching related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are seven major, fundamental, cardinal doctrines that we must be in agreement on if we're going to have the kind of church God wants us to be. So let's look at these for just a moment. First of all, verse 4, one body. Remember what Paul said about the church in 1 Timothy? He said the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. He did not say the church is one of the pillars of truth. He said it is the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, it's the only institution that you can depend upon that has the truth. It's the only institution that the Lord ever ordained. Now, because that's true, then it's easy to see why Satan would launch his attack against the Lord's church. Most of the time, you know, if a person is wrong here, that is about the church, then they eventually get wrong about almost everything else. Someone the other day was asking me about... uh, the Camelites. In fact, they really hadn't heard of that word. Uh, uh, they were talking in reference to the Church of Christ. Well, the Church of Christ are commonly called Camelites because Camel is the one that started the Church of Christ. But he, just like so many today, used to be a Baptist. And how many people have you met like that? Well, I used to be a Baptist. And... Uh, All of a sudden, now they've changed over entirely from what they believe. And again, I'm saying that if you get wrong about the Lord's church, after a while, that same group of people will get wrong about all of their other teachings. And boy, I mean, that's exactly where they've gone. Now, Satan is constantly trying to discredit and destroy the church, and I... I don't think I'm exaggerating a bit whenever I say uh, among professing Christians there's more confusion about this than absolutely any of the other doctrines. I really believe that because when you get right down to it, only the Baptist, only the Baptist would agree with what the Bible teaches in this regards. And here's the sad part, not even all of the so-called Baptists believe what we believe. There's a lot of people that have retained the name, but they've ditched the doctrine somewhere along the way. Most professing Christians believe that this refers to all believers, what they call the invisible church rather than the local church. I mean, listen, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious And so many times I'll be reading something in in regards to the church, and they'll talk about maybe in reference to this verse or some other verse, and they'll talk about, you know, the body of Christ and it being made up of all of the various believers, and 
Then they'll talk about the local church, and the sermon they're preaching or writing about may have to do with the local church. You see, you, you can't come up with many sermons about Christian service if the church is universal and invisible, and they'll use the very same verse in reference to a universal invisible church and also in reference to a local visible church, which they say is just a manifestation of the larger church. Let me tell you, the Catholics are closer to the truth in this regards than the Protestants are. The Protestants believe that the body of Christ, or the church, as they call it, the universal invisible church, is made up of all of those that are saved. And and the Catholics believe that the church is a visible church. In fact, they believe there is only one body, that is only one church. The problem with them is they think they're it, and there is none other. You know, a lot of times we get criticized for being narrow-minded. Let me tell you what, the Catholics are about as narrow-minded as you can get if you'll read what they actually believe. They say there's only one church, and they're it. That's closer to the truth than the Protestants who say, well, there is a universal, invisible church that all Christians are a part of, and then there is a local, visible church, or there are local, visible churches. That doesn't even make sense. And certainly, then, if that was true, you've got two different kinds of bodies there, right? You've got a universal, invisible something over here, and then you've got a local something over here. That's two. And, and, and the Bible says there's only one body. The word church from, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. It means a called-out assembly. Now, if you've got a called-out assembly, it cannot be and it is not something that is invisible. Well, somebody says, but, you know, but the Bible oftentimes speaks about, uh, you know, and uses the word church in reference to something that is clearly not indicative of a particular church, and that's right. In other words, they're using that word in the generic sense. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you, but it's important that you understand this. For example, whenever we talk about the family... I can talk about the family as an institution. Now, folks, listen, there is only one family. Talking about human beings now, there's only one family, so to speak, one kind of a family. It's made up of a man and a woman. You cannot have a family just made up of two men that have united or two women. It's a family such as what God established. And we use that word in a generic sense. We talk about You know, the family. It's important that the family survive in America. The family is the foundation of our nation, people oftentimes say. Now, we know we're not talking about the Smith family or the Jones family or any particular family. We're talking about the family in general. And in the same way, the word church is oftentimes used of the church in general. But it's not speaking about a specific denomination. It's just talking about the church in general. But in the vast majority of the cases, when you find the word church, the context will tell you that it's used in reference to a specific congregation. 
Whether he says it's I'm writing to the church of God at Corinth, or I'm writing to the church at Ephesus, or the churches, plural, in Galatia. You know, it's in reference to local, visible churches. So there's only one body, just one, and that is a church. And a church is what? A church is a called out assembly of born-again believers that have been baptized and united together in a common faith and a fellowship for the purpose of carrying out the commission that God gave to us. That, that's what a church is. That's what a church is all about. There's only, only one. Now, we really get criticized as Baptists for believing in our heritage as Baptists. And I could, I could stand here before you and I could read you what historians has written, Ridpath's history of the world, and what even preachers from all of the other denominations, even Campbell himself, tells us that all of the way back to the time of Christ, there could be found congregations that believe exactly what we do today as Baptists. And so we speak about our Baptist heritage, and we try to point out that when we talk about our Baptist heritage, that we're not talking about the name we bear, but the doctrine that we believe. Because we obviously cannot be traced back by the name Baptist all of the way back to the time of Christ. The congregations at that time were not called Baptist, but they were Baptistic in belief. So, somebody comes along and they make some smart aleck statement like this. You Baptists think you're the only ones going to heaven. No, we don't. I've never heard a Baptist preacher ever say anything like that. We believe there's a lot of folks that are saved that are not Baptists, but I'll tell you one thing. What we do believe is that unless you're a Baptist, you're not a part of the bride of Christ. You're not a part of the Lord's church unless you embrace the doctrines of the Baptist, unless you're a part of a Baptist congregation. One body. One body. Oh, I, I could go on and on. I really get irritated, though, getting back to some of this serious stuff. I, it really chaps my hide when somebody will get upset with what's going on here in our church over some little petty something, and they'll leave, and the next thing you know, they join such and such church over here that's not even Baptist. Something's wrong with that picture. And they'll leave a church where we use only the King James Version of the Bible, and they'll go out here and join a church that uses the NIV. I, I don't understand that. I've got to go. Verse 4, One body and one spirit. Now, there are many spirits in the world, by the way. But when he says there is one Spirit, he is speaking in reference to the Holy Spirit. And Paul's already spoken about that quite extensively, right? 
What have we learned so far here in this book of Ephesians? We've learned that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He seals every believer. He also gives us access to God. He reveals the deep things of God to us. He strengthens us and He binds us together so over and over, Paul has emphasized the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2 and verse 22, notice it says here that the church is, quote, a habitation of God through the Spirit. That can't be said about any other organization on the earth. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is not a habitation of God. God doesn't dwell there. I admire a lot of things about Billy Graham. Let me just state that for the record. I really do. To, to, to live as long as he has without any major scandals uh, tells you something about the man's character. And I believe he is a man of high character. I'm not here trying to in any way just be overly critical of him. I'm just telling you that God did not start the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. God did not start the Southern Baptist Convention. God did not start the Baptist Bible Fellowship. The Lord established only one institution on this earth, and that is the church. And it's only the church that can be called God's habitation. And you see, it's His presence in the church that makes all of the difference in the world. We see the privilege and the provision and the power and the potential all of those things that we have as a result of the Holy Spirit, that sets the church apart from every other organization because He enables us to do what we could never do on our own. I'm so glad that I don't have to depend on me and I don't have to depend on you. I don't have to depend on us to do the Lord's work. The Holy Spirit does those things. And we just need to stay out of His way and let Him work in our midst. One body, one spirit, one hope. Boy, listen, there are a lot of hopes in the world, false hopes. A lot of folks, you know, they hope they're going to heaven. They hope their sins have been forgiven. But there's only one hope that's of any value and any eternal good. Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So all of our hopes are bound up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one hope. He goes a little further when he gets over to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13. He says that we are looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we live and die in hope because we believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And it's that hope that keeps us afloat when the storms of life are raging against us. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6 for just a moment. We're talking about hope that keeps us going. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay, notice, lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope? 
We have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in, entereth into that within the veil. That could speak of nobody other than Jesus Christ. He is our hope. That is the only hope. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, He's saying He's the only hope this world has, folks. So there's not two ways to heaven or three ways to heaven. There's only one way. It used to be an old song. I didn't really like the song, some of the lyrics. I, I, I didn't like very much about it at all, but it's... Uh, I think the title of it was uh, One Way Jesus. Now, that's true. That's a good, you know, a good title, One Way Jesus. And there is only one way. He is our hope. Notice verse number 5, there is one Lord. Now, that word Lord speaks about sovereign power and absolute authority. It relates to the possession of power, the possession of authority. In other words, it's talking about somebody that has absolute ownership and power. It was a, it was a word that back in Paul's day implied somebody owns it, somebody controls it. As classical Greek developed over a period of time, this title here become used for men of importance. In, in other words, you know, uh, we hear the phrase, especially back in the Victorian age, you know, my Lord. And it was common for people to use that phraseology in reference to men of honor. But here it refers to Jesus Christ, the most important person that ever lived. The Bible says a lot about the Lordship of Christ. I mean a lot. And nobody is saved until, first of all, and I want you to listen very carefully because there's a big debate raging about this. Nobody is saved until they acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord over all. That is clear from Romans chapter 10. We oftentimes, in dealing with other people, read these verses to an unsaved person, and a lot of folks do this without ever emphasizing the Lordship of Christ. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, what? The Lord Jesus Christ, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the, what? Lord shall be saved. Here's the debate. There are those that, that believe what the Bible teaches in regards to the Lordship of Christ, that before we can be saved, that we must acknowledge Him as the Lord of our life. And then there are those others that, that condemn that doctrine and say that it's really not a matter uh, at all of having Christ as the Lord of your life. It's simply that of trusting Him as your Savior. And then maybe later on you come to acknowledge that He's the Lord of your life and you begin to yield yourself to Him. And, and, and those people oftentimes say something like this. If salvation is dependent, you know, upon the Lordship of Christ, well, then none of us are going to be saved because there are none of us that live a perfect life. Well, nobody said anything about living a perfect life. None of us live our life in total allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We all fall and we all fail. You've heard the statement. And, and I'm sure that I've used it. Unless Christ is Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Now, that statement is true, but it can be 
twisted and distorted so as to make it an untruth. By that, I mean, if I say that He is either Lord of all, if by that I mean that I am living in perfect submission to Him as Lord, if that's what I mean, then there's not a word of truth in it. Because none of us at the present can do that. Here's the point. It's not a matter of us attaining salvation by living perfectly under the Lordship of Christ which none of us can do. It's a matter of acknowledging that He is Lord. And if you don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, then you're not going to be saved. A person has to get to that point. I love what old Vans Havner and his southern drawl many years ago before he died, and he had a real dry, wet sense of humor about him. And old Vance Havner stood before a bunch of preachers, and he said, I came to Christ as a country boy. He said, I did not understand all about the plan of salvation. One does not have to understand it. One has only to stand on it. One thing I did understand, even as a lad... I understood that I was under new management. I belonged to Christ, and He was Lord. He's right. Now, now listen, as a new, young Christian, he didn't understand a lot of things. And folks, we're never going to understand everything there is about the Lord. But the one thing we need to be rock solid about, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not just one of the ways to heaven. He is Lord over all. Now, verse 5 again, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, now one faith. That word faith is used in the objective sense, not in the subjective sense. Let me explain it this way. When we use it in the objective sense, we're talking about the body of truth that is set forth in the Bible. If we talk about it in the subjective sense, then we're talking about faith in the sense of confidence in Him. Subjectively, it, the word faith has to do with our confidence in Him. Objectively, it has to do with our creed or our, you know, our confidence in, in what the Lord has taught. Are you with me? It has to do with the body of truth that we believe. That's why Jude said, earnestly contend for what? The faith. That has nothing to do with subjective faith, nothing to do whatsoever with our confidence and our feelings and our trust in God. It has to do entirely with what we believe as Christians, the body of truth. Earnestly contend for the faith. Now, that would include the gospel, absolutely. That is a part of the faith, the body of truth that we believe. And that's the only message by which anybody can be saved. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else in all of the world is going to get people saved other than the gospel. We can preach about how to raise your children. We can speech about, uh, uh, preach about how to manage your finances. We can preach about everything under the sun. But if the gospel message is not made clear, people are not going to be saved. They've got to hear the gospel to be saved. And, and there's what? There is one faith, one way to heaven. 
And we've got to agree on that. Whenever the Bible talks about the fact that two walk together except they agree, and the Bible says that we're to come out from among them and be ye separate, what's that talking about? It's talking about the differences between believers and non-believers. Now, if somebody, for example, said, uh, I want to join Lakeway Baptist Church. I, I love the choir. I, I love the, the musicians. Or I like the Sunday school teacher. He or she has a wonderful personality. I, I, I re- and besides that, it's right here in the neighborhood. It's really convenient. Uh, I, I want to join Lakeway Baptist Church. And so we begin to inquire as to their belief concerning salvation, for example, and they say, well, you know, I want to join your church, but I, I sure don't believe what you all believe. I, I, I think you've got to get baptized in order to be saved, or I think you've got to climb a mountain or swim across the sea or whatever it is. You see, automatically we are at odds right there. There can be no Christian unity with a person like that, and we would never accept them into our fellowship on that basis. Why? Because there's just one faith. And if we're not together on this, then we're not together on anything, folks. And then he says there is one baptism, verse number 6. I remember many years ago a preacher had preached a sermon entitled, The Seven Baptisms. Now, here's what he did. He went through the Bible and he took different verses that used the word baptism and the seven different ways in which it was used, and he compiled a message. Well, now, wait a minute. Here it says there's only one baptism, but here's a man preaching about seven different baptisms. So what's going on here? How can there be only one if there are seven different baptisms? One of the points that he made had to do with there in Hebrews where it's talking about the children of Israel when they're crossing the Red Sea, and it says they were baptized unto Moses. You know the verse, right? said, the children of Israel were baptized unto Moses. Well, what does that mean? It had nothing to do with Christian baptism at all. The word baptism means to dip, plunge, or to immerse. The word baptism is not a translation. We get the English word baptism by anglicizing the Greek word, which was baptizo, and we take the E off and put, or take the O off and put the E on there, and we say baptize instead of baptizo as it was in the Greek. So we took a Greek word and made it into a, uh, into an English word. But the meaning of that word is exactly the same. So that's why we say that sprinkling does not constitute Scriptural baptism. There must be an, a plunging and immersion in it, you see. Now, that's what Christian baptism is. You can use the word baptize in other ways. And by the way, there are those, the Protestants, for example, those that do not believe what we do about the church, those that claim that the church came into existence on the day of Pentecost, And they say that it was on that day that the church was baptized, and they usually say something like this, with the mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost, you know. That's usually the way they like to put it. The mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. I got news for you. The the Holy Spirit didn't baptize anybody. They talk about, well, haven't you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? No, I haven't. Nobody else has ever been baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
that early church was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the element in which they were immersed. Just as Christian baptism is immersion in water, that was a type of baptism, immersion in the element of the Holy Spirit. And that was all about the Lord giving ample evidence to the community and the world that this church here is my dwelling place. By the way, that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament whenever the tabernacle was finished and later when the temple was finished. In both instances, we find that that Holy of Holies was there was an immersion or a cloud that enveloped that dwelling place. And so when we come to the New Testament, exactly the same thing happens. But folks, listen, there's only one baptism. True, you can use the word baptism in reference to other things, but there's only one Christian baptism. And that baptism has to do with immersion in water. Now, verse number 6, here's the seventh, the seventh pillar in the church. One God and Father of all. Now... Although man has made many gods to himself, he's simply telling us here there's only one true and living God. Turn back to 1 Corinthians for just a moment, chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and here's Paul writing in verse number 5. And he says, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as many as, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us... There is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. So Paul is saying basically exactly the same thing that he wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, a lot of folks say, well, you know, it doesn't make any difference, you know, uh, who or what we worship as long as we acknowledge that there is some higher power. Uh, well, I won't get off into that. There are some organizations that have been very helpful to people by showing concern for them and getting them off of addictions and things of that nature, and they make it a part of their philosophy for people to acknowledge that there is a higher power. The only problem I've got with those organizations is why don't they just come right out and tell them that that higher power is the Lord God Almighty, the true and living God, the Jehovah of the Bible. They need to know who that higher power is. And there's only one. And that one is our Father. Notice He's the Father of all, certainly in the sense of being a Creator, he is the Father of all, but He's actually the Father only to those that have been born again. And notice, He is above all. That speaks about His sovereign purpose. He's above all. He's over all. He is supreme. There's none like Him. He has no equal. He is self-sufficient, not dependent on anyone. Above all, and notice, through all. That's His pervasive power, through all. In other words... God is in the whole universe. You can't find a place where God is not. That's what the psalmist said, Though I go into heaven, He's there. If I make my bed in hell, He is there. I can't get away from Him. He created all. He controls all. In other words, He's involved in absolutely everything. This morning, 
I was talking about how easy it is for us to really get trouble. I mean trouble to the point that we can even incapacitate ourselves. We can become paralyzed when we look at the trouble that we're in. The antidote for that, as we look at the situation in our nation today and we wonder, wow, how did we get in this mess and how are we going to get out of this mess? Listen, here's the solution to that problem. And if we really believe what we preach, then we need to get with the program, and and that is that God is involved in everything. As bad as this is, I'm telling you, things did not just happen. God allowed us to get in this situation. And the chances are good things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And guess what? God's going to be involved in that. In other words, none of this would have happened if God didn't let it happen. And if God let it happen, He did so for a reason. And someday we can look back and laugh at it, but now we get deeply troubled by it. Now, this is what he's saying, that he is the Father of all, above all. He is through all. His power is uh, pervasive. He's in absolutely everything. And notice, and in you all. That has to do with his indwelling presence. God's not only over us and around us as believers, he is in us. You can't get away from him. That must have been a great comfort as these these dear saints there in Ephesus. And picture in your mind the congregation there gathered together and one of the elders is standing there with the, with the letter from the Apostle Paul and he's reading this. And he reminds them that the Spirit of God is in you all. Every believer possesses the Spirit of God that's exciting when you think about it. We look at one another and, you, you know, we, we have a tendency to say, well, this person's smarter than that person. This person is more gifted than that person. And, you know, we see all of those differences. Let me tell you, we need to focus on the similarity instead of the differences. And the similarity is, is that God indwells every believer in this church. The Spirit of the living God is living in them. Listen, that gives them great potential that enables them to serve as God would have them to do in His body. But also, that very fact calls for our highest respect that they're a child of God indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. We better be careful how we treat God's children. Doesn't it excite you to think that the Holy Spirit is living in you? Seven pillars, and these are seven things, folks, that we have absolutely got to be in agreement upon. You, you younger folks, whenever, when us older folks, when we're dead and gone, if, if the Lord hasn't come by then, and you're here, don't you underestimate the power of Satan. He'll pull every shenanigan imaginable trying to lead this church astray. He'll do everything in his power trying to deceive you and trying to destroy you. And I hope you'll remember what I'm telling you tonight. 
If some knothead preacher stands up here in view of a call someday, and he's not in agreement with what the Bible teaches about those seven things, you get rid of him as quick as you can. And don't you dare ordain a deacon that doesn't believe those seven things. Don't you appoint a Sunday school teacher that doesn't believe those seven things. These are the seven pillars to the church, the major doctrines that's going to make us what God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank You for putting into our hands the truth. Things that we don't have to guess about. We don't have to do a survey and take a poll and find out what we ought to believe. That all we have to do is just open up the Bible and read what you've said. And how we thank you for making the truth known unto us. And for the very manner in which the truth impacts our lives and how it equips us for Christian service, how it comforts us in the face of trials and tribulations. And we thank you tonight for the truth, and I pray that we might not just rejoice in it, but may we tonight commit ourselves to making these truths known to others. Remind us again and again that there's only one hope, and that hope is Jesus. And our neighbor, our relatives, our friends need to hear that message. Only one hope, but thank God there is hope. In our dear Savior, for we ask it all in His name. Let's stand together as we sing. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. And it's There's room at the cross for you. Aren't you glad? Thank God there's room for all of us. room at the cross for you. No millions have come. There's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross. Amen. Don't forget teachers' meeting over in the fellowship hall immediately afterwards. Give me a few minutes to to say bye to the folks, and then I'll be right over there. But we hope that you'll uh, will stay and participate. Any final word before we leave? Anyone? Crystal. A special guest this Wednesday. Okay. All right, special guest. Okay, but Dennis?
Yes. Amen. Uh, okay, anybody else? All right. Uh, David Scott, would you word our prayer for us, please?